0: Friends, this morning, we are coming to the end of our fall series of messages. I called it, uh, I had my own name for it, of seven questions. As the theme of our series of messages has been questions that in Jesus' time on earth that Jesus asked people. Now, as we've mentioned as the week's gone by, depending on how you parse them and how you divide them, because as I mentioned uh Punctuation is not part of Scripture. the uh, The Greek was written all in capital letters early on. There were no spaces between the words, so sometimes it's difficult to know if something is a statement or a question. And so, the exact number of questions recorded in Scripture is hard to pin down. But what we know is that more than ten to one, Jesus. Asked questions more than he ever gave answers and more often than not as we even even see today as we've seen in the past weeks when people would ask Jesus a direct question he would often answer it with another question and as we've looked at Jesus we've seen that his questions were an integral part of his teaching method It wasn't exactly the Socratic method of leading discussion with questions, but it was important that the questions Jesus asked often, rather than Jesus asking to gain information, he asked questions so that we could learn. He asked questions, as we see today, often to reveal the depths of our hearts. As Pastor Ron repeated a question we'd looked at earlier last week, who do you say that I am? Jesus asking a question for us to question ourselves and to look within and find who we are and what we think and what we believe. I've appreciated Jesus' questions because oftentimes as we've studied and looked at these questions, he's asked the questions of us. Who do you say that I am? Do you love me? Why are you crying? All of these questions that can be applied to us today and that by the Holy Spirit God takes The questions from the pages of scripture brings them alive, fresh and new, and applies them to our hearts. Final question before we move into the Advent season and look at a couple of the direct answers Jesus did give, because they're fascinating as well. It begins with a passage. Jesus is near the end of his ministry. Now remember, he has been pouring his life into his 12 disciples for about three years at this point. In Sunday school this morning, we were going through Con Campbell's wonderful video series in pursuit of Peter the Apostle. And we were again looking at the Apostles and their relationship with Jesus at the end of those three years. It says Jesus is more than a teacher and mentor. He's a friend. He's like a brother. And by now, you would think the apostolic band was together. They were unified. They were all on the same page. They were in step with Jesus. But as normal people as human beings, we don't see that at all. In fact, they're very relatable to us because of it. As I said, this is near the end of the ministry because Jesus is beginning that final trip to Jerusalem. Scripture says that he has set his face to Jerusalem like flint, the hardest rock they knew, and he's on his way. And we begin reading... To set, the, to set the context of the questions that are asked today, the context begins in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified on the third day he will be raised to life jesus it says in scripture began at this latter stage of his teaching ministry to teach the disciples very plainly no longer in parables he was telling them what was going to happen and yet their ears were not tuned into the truth They continued to wonder what he meant by that. I wonder what he means by killed and raised again. It's some parable he's telling us here. They didn't take it seriously. They didn't take it literally. All they knew that at the end of this, whatever was going to happen was going to be life. They knew it was positive. They'd seen Jesus' power. They knew Jesus was going to win. So they were focusing on the kingdom, the kingdom to come. Get rid of the Romans. Restore the kingdom. That's always their priority. They're excited about it. And he's going down for the Passover. And they know those Passover times are politically charged. No better time to become the Messiah in deed as well as in word. And to cast out the Romans. And to reveal himself to all of God's people. They also know that his life's been threatened. And they know that the powers to be down in Jerusalem are working against Jesus with his death as their goal. And so all of this is going through their minds. And it brings us to the question. The question. This is the context. The question that we're going to look at more closely is, can you drink the cup? Now, when we think of the cup, we always think of the Lord's table, the communion cup the cup of the new covenant in Jesus' blood, as we should. But the cup in this question, though related, goes far beyond that. Can you drink the cup? A question Jesus asks followers. Can you drink the cup? But before that, before Jesus' question, we have a different question call it a selfish question it's one of my favorite passages because not all of the synoptic gospels they include this but they don't all have the detail they have james and john have a question but in this passage we see that james and john came with their mother and she posed the question they stood there with her but allowed their mother the wife of zebedee scripture tells us her name was salome Salome asked Jesus the question. Remember, many of the disciples' mothers and other believing women of means would follow the disciples, provide uh, the food around the campfire. The, they would just be with them. And this group includes women like that. The same women that very soon will be standing at the foot of the cross when most of the disciples have fled. So the mother of James and John asked the question that they have on their hearts. Jesus has just laid out the timeline of his suffering, of his torture, of his death and resurrection. And on the heels of that, and I believe it's connected because in every one of the synoptic accounts, that revealing of his suffering and death is immediately followed by James and John asking this question. The first is the selfish question. We see it in Matthew chapter 20. Verse 20, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asked the favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. They expect the kingdom to come very quickly. And she's wanting to get the best seats for her boys. Now, that question, a mother, proud of her sons, James and John, sons of thunder, passionate followers, followers of Jesus, two of the three inner circle along with the apostle Peter, it makes sense that they would have positions of honor in Jesus' coming kingdom. Now we see in the context later down, we won't go into that passage, but this deeply offended the other ten disciples. And, you know, looking at it, I kind of figure they probably were kicking themselves and offended that they didn't get there first. That Peter and John beat them to the punch and are going to get the good seats in the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus has told them they will sit on 12 thrones. They just want their thrones on the right and the left of the Messiah. So they ask this question, and they're thinking of themselves and the glory of the kingdom. Where Jesus has just revealed that before the kingdom is the suffering and is the death. And so following this selfish question, Jesus asks his question. And I believe it's a very sacrificial question. He's speaking not only of his death and suffering, but as his followers of theirs, of ours. The sacrificial question We continue in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 20. After they asked this question, mom and the two boys, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. And then he asked the question, can you drink the cup? I'm going to drink. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father jesus says it's my father makes the seating plan for the kingdom but he asked that question as he often did he asked a question to reveal something within the hearers within us can you drink the cup that i'm going to drink and they said, we can. And Jesus agrees that they will drink the cup. He knows their future. The cup, we know, has something to do with what he's just prophesied, his suffering and his death, as well as his resurrection. All of the suffering before the glory, they say, we will. We'll follow you. We'll drink the cup. And Jesus knows that after the suicide of Judas, that the first of the believing, faithful disciples to give his life, the first of the apostolic band was going to be James right there. He had so much potential, James and John. Peter, James, and John. And yet James, very quickly, is beheaded. John. If James, his brother, was the first to die, very likely John was the last. But a long life didn't mean he escaped suffering. In fact, John's life was marked by suffering and trial and persecution and exile and rejection. (laughs) But through it all, he was a faithful follower of Jesus right to the Isle of Patmos, right to the book of Revelation, to whom God gave the revelation himself. Jesus says, oh yeah, you don't fully understand what the cup is, but you will drink deeply of it. Now we've been talking about the cup, the cup, the cup friends is a common figure of speech in scripture, the cup in scripture. Let's look at that. Basically it's something that you partake in an experience in which you can or refuse to participate the cup. Let's look briefly at a few of those so you understand what I'm saying. Jesus, for instance, uses the figure of speech, the cup, in the Garden of Gethsemane soon after this event we've looked at today. In Mark chapter 14, for instance, Jesus, we know the passage so well. It says, or the cup, Mark 14, oh, I'm in Luke. I'll get to Mark. Okay, Mark 14, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed. If possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. His desire was not to suffer not only physical, excruciating death on the cross, tortured to death by Romans who were experts in torturous death, but he knew it included taking upon himself the sins of all mankind, that his death was an atoning death, a substitutionary death. He understood that event, that experience, and his humanness, He didn't want to participate in that who would but in his heart he says not my will but yours so the cup is used there of the suffering of the cross the atoning substitutionary death of Jesus but elsewhere in Scripture one of the most familiar passages for instance Psalm 23 my cup overflows there the cup is the cup of God's blessing you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies you anoint my head with oil; my cup overflows. Throughout the Old Testament, especially in Psalms, we see that cup of blessing. Psalm one sixteen thirteen I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. God's salvation, God's blessings, we experience them. They are a cup of blessing offered to us. Our cups overflow. But in the same way, friends, the cup is used in Scripture of the wrath of God. There's a powerful passage in Isaiah chapter 51, a powerful passage. Through the prophet, we read in verse 17, Awake, awake, rise, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. God's wrath is pictured as a goblet of wrath. The grapes of wrath, the trampling of the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. (laughs) That's the cup of wrath. Later in that chapter, God's time of wrath against his people and their idolatry ends. A beautiful passage, the Lord says, I take the cup from your hand. No more will you drink from the cup of my wrath. I give it to your tormentors. God's wrath moves from his people. Their punishment and now falls upon their tormentors and the enemies of God's people. The cup of God's wrath. And friends, we are called in Scripture as followers of Jesus. As Jesus asked that same question of James and John, can you drink the cup that I drink? Jesus was a man of sorrows, Scripture tells us. Isaiah says he was a man of sorrow, well acquainted with grief. We looked at him and considered him stricken, accursed by God because of his suffering. Realizing as we do that his suffering was on our behalf. And yet his followers in an incredible way. As we talked in Sunday school, if you were going to invent a religion, as human religions are, you would have certain rules and certain benefits No one in their right mind would have a crucified Savior. No one would call the followers of Jesus to at the very heart of who we are to include suffering as our birthright. And yet this is the cup, the suffering of Christ, that we are all called to drink. The Apostle Paul, he says, if I rejoice in anything, it's going to be that the suffering I experience fills up the suffering of Jesus. The Apostle Peter, as you see on the screen, he puts the suffering of Christ and the cup of the suffering of Jesus and our unity with Christ in our suffering in a most beautiful way. 1 Peter chapter 4, we begin reading. Dear friends, Do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. What's a cup? An experience that you participate in. A cup you partake. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. This is deep waters, friends. This is meat, not milk. This is maturity, not childish faith. Rejoice that you bear that name. The Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, said, Consider it pure joy when you suffer trials of many kinds. Pure joy. Joy, remember, is not based on the circumstances around us. What is happening leads to Happiness. But in the direst circumstances the darkest night the heaviest heart God's joy is of our love for him and his great love for us is untouched. Nothing has changed. There's only three places in the whole Bible that the word Christian is mentioned. One in the book of Acts says that it's there in Antioch as Barnabas fetches Saul to come to Antioch to help him teach. It's in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. And then Paul, late in his ministry, as he's being deported now to to stand before Caesar, he's claimed trial before Caesar. He's talking to the Jewish king Agrippa, Herod's grandson, and he's talking to the Roman governor, Festus. And Agrippa, after hearing Paul's testimony, says, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? <laughs> they bore The name of Christ, this is the third. Peter says, the name Christian is not just a label. You bear the name of Jesus. If you bear his name, you walk in his steps. And Jesus says in John 15, don't be surprised if the world hates you. They hated me first. They hated me first. The cup of sharing Christ's sufferings. And yet, friends, we realize as followers of Jesus, hear what I'm saying now, that when we suffer, nothing grows us in our faith like suffering. Normally, we live our lives, even the best of us, in our own strength. We depend on our finances. We depend on our possessions. We depend on the security that living in a wonderful country provides. We celebrated that yesterday on Remembrance Day. We depend on our family, our loved ones. We depend on our health. We depend on our wealth. We depend upon our human wisdom. But in suffering, those are taken away from us. Those are removed and we depend on them no more. And we lean on the arms of Jesus. Certain things become proverbial. Old sayings because they are so true. Throughout my life I've heard the truth. That you really know Jesus is all you need. You never know that. You don't really know that Jesus is all you need until you know that Jesus is all that you have. Suffering does that. You don't know that Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. Health, family, loved ones, a life spouse taken away. But Jesus remains. Suffering does that. We find our unity with him as he walks by our side. And surely, even the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because he's with us. Our good shepherd walks with us all the way. That brings us to the final cup that we participate in. Every day, God's children are called to drink the cup with James and John. We often don't see it. Our suffering is small compared to the persecuted church around the world. But it's coming. Very clearly, it's coming to us in the West as well. But until Jesus returns, we proclaim his love for us, shown through his death on the cross, by sharing the Lord's table, the cup of the new covenant. (laughs) Take this cup, Jesus said. Physical cup. Speaks of the figurative cup. The blood of Jesus shed for you and I. Jesus refers to that in the Last Supper account. In the Gospel of Luke. I'll begin reading a little earlier. Jesus said, This is my body given for you in reference to the bread. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper he took the cup. Saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And when you take this cup. We recognize that you participate in the shed blood of Jesus. You partake of it. You participate in it. That spiritual reality is reflected by the physical act. The spiritual reality is spelled out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15. Paul says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving. He's talking about the communion time. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? We participate in that act of love. Jesus' death on the cross and his shed blood is for us. It covers and cleanses us from all sins. It's ours. We recognize that spiritual reality as we take that cup in hopes of better things. And that's the truth of Scripture, friends, that the suffering of this life wins for us an eternal glory. Remember James and John and Mother Salome, they wanted to skip the suffering and get to the glory. And Jesus says, glory is there in part, in large part, because of the suffering you went through. That's where the reward and the rejoicing will come in The Apostle Paul writing to his fractious church in Corinth says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, he's talking about his beating shipwrecks, stoning to death, imprisonment. Paul says, ah, Compare it to eternity, light and momentary. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. (laughs) Sharing the cup of glory of Jesus' life and resurrection. Before we come to the communion table, I finish with a quote from Tim Keller. He passed away recently. One of the great authors and men of God. One of his specialties was writing books about Christians experiencing suffering in fellowship with Jesus. In his final book, which is Going Through Pain and Suffering with Jesus, he writes these words. The most rapturous delights you have ever had in the beauty of a landscape or in the pleasure of food or in the fulfillment of a loving embrace, are like dewdrops compared to the bottomless ocean of joy that, will be, that it will be to see God face to face. This is what we are in for. Nothing less. Our light and momentary troubles, they achieve for us an amazing grace, an eternal glory, we're called to come to the table until the Lord's return. This is us going through the action, participating in His sacrifice, remembering His shed blood, but looking forward to the eternal weight of glory. Let's pray together. As we pray, let's ask God to prepare our hearts to come to the table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for your word father your word is sharp it's like a two-edged sword that alone can pierce the human heart and soul father i pray that the word of god would trim away those things of the world in us the old nature that clings to us and that father even through difficult circumstances that we would recognize that we're sharing in jesus suffering that we are blessed to bear the name of Christ. Father, part of that Christian life is remembering, remembering Jesus and his great love for us, that on his last night before his crucifixion, he took the Passover meal, a memorial meal, and he gave it new meaning, recognizing that no longer it would be the blood of a lamb, but his own blood, that would cleanse from all unrighteousness. Now, Father, as we come, may our hearts, Lord, turn to you. May our eyes be fixed on Jesus. If there be any hurtful way in us, Father, I pray that we would confess it and find cleansing from it and come with clear conscience to the table. For we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the servers join me to the front, I'd just like to remind everybody that what we practice here, we call it open communion. It's not for members of this local church. It's for all who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I'll be reading from the familiar passage, Paul's corrective instructions to the Corinthians church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul writes, For I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'll call upon Kevin to give thanks for the bread which points us to the body of Jesus given for us on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you showed us the way. Father, thank you that you gave us the symbol of this bread, Father, to remember what you did. Father, thank you for your body that was broken, Father, for the atonements of our sin. Father, that one day we might have eternal life and stand there face to face with you. Father, we thank you for this bread this morning. Scripture tells us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And we had broken it. He prayed for it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Jesus then took the cup, cup which reminds us of his precious blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. I'll call upon Lance to give thanks for the cup. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I just, as I come before the table, Lord, I just, I just want to acknowledge how unworthy I am, Lord. And um, just this gift you've given, God, in my sin and in my weakness, you gave a perfect life, Jesus, your son. And I just want to thank you. And... Um, Just thank you for the blood that was shed um, as you defeated death. So we just want to thank you. same way. After supper, Jesus took the cup, said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Friends, let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, a day that you have made. Lord, this is a day, as all others, full of joy, full of tears. But, Lord, in the midst of it all, we recognize that those most difficult things we go through, we go through with Jesus. Lord, we walk in his steps. And I just pray, Father, that even through the hard things in life, as we taste of the cup of Christ, that we grow to be more like him. Thank you, Lord, for the table. Thank you for the invitation to us to come and remember Jesus. And now, Father, dismiss us from this place of worship and fellowship to our places of ministry, our places of, Lord, to be Christ wherever we go, whoever we speak to. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.